We are looking at life in the family of God. And last week we looked at the first and foundational aspect of life in the family of God. And from verses 2 to 4 of Colossians chapter 4, we've seen that that is purposeful prayer. It's the kind of prayer that is for Christ's body to be centered on what is eternal. That God's people would be centered on what is eternal. We'd be centered on what God is seeking to do in us, through us, and around us for His glory. Paul mentions that we are to continue steadfastly or be devoted in prayer. Well, you cannot have a prayer life like what verses 2 to 4 of Colossians 4 talks about without having it affect your everyday living. We can have a prayer life that does not describe what is in verses 2 to 4 that is all centered on ourselves and our needs and, 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 and just the, the temporal needs of other people. We can have those types of prayers and have that type of prayer life and have it not affect our individual lives at all. Because our, if our prayers are temporal, then our living will be temporal. If our prayers are me-centered, our living is going to be me-centered. So you can have what's not described in verses 2 to 4 of Colossians 4, and you can be praying like that, and man, that can have no effect on your living. And actually, it does have an effect because it continues what we naturally do. But when you are praying, and your prayers are described as Paul describes them in verses 2 to 4, the types of things we should be praying for, the types of perspectives that we should have in our lives as we pray, man, if we're doing that, then it will impact our everyday living. It can't help but impact it. And this is what we're going to come to next as we look at what life in the family of God should look like. We're going to now look at a second aspect of life in the family of God that not only involves purposeful prayer as the foundation, but then moves to purposeful living or purposeful conduct in this world. And we're going to see that while we cannot be, uh, that we're going to see that we cannot be purposefully praying without having it have an impact upon our living and our conduct. The key to this passage that we said aloud together last week, we're going to say it again, is this: the family of God must be defined by purposeful prayer and purposeful living. Let's say that together. The family of God must be defined by purposeful prayer and purposeful living. And this morning we are going to look at verses 5 and 6 of Colossians chapter 4 and we are going to look at this aspect and unpack what this means to be living purposefully, to be conducting ourselves purposefully. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to, to now study your word together, 
Lord, we've sung so many great truths that your word contains. Father, that you have overcome. Lord, that you are reigning, you are ruling. Father, that we have the great assurance that your love is for us. It is there. Lord, thank you that we have the security of knowing that we are, for your followers, we are in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Lord, work in a way that is both individual and is specific. Father, we know that, there are, that, that this room is full of many individuals, Lord, but you are concerned with our own individual heart, not the person we're sitting next to, not the person um, that maybe we have an issue with or that we're thinking about, but Lord, with us. So Lord, I pray that you would specifically convict us of sin, that you would specifically encourage us in the areas we need encouragement, that you would prod us to move forward in the ways that we need to move forward. And Lord, that you would do that as you point our eyes to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at purposeful conduct. Let's read verses 5 and 6. You follow along as I read out loud. We come to the second command that Paul gives in verses 2 to 6. Now it says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, we have a gospel-centered purpose in the life of a Christian. It stems from our individual prayer life, and it overflows to our living in how we are to seek to conduct ourselves, even in the midst of the routine. The gospel affects even our everyday living. The command is to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The rest of the passage in verses 5 and 6 then describe what it means and what it looks like to walk in wisdom. So we're going to look this morning at what it means to walk in wisdom. And that is first of all described as a conduct that is characterized by this wisdom. So if we are to walk in wisdom, we need to know what this wisdom is that Paul is even talking about. Many times we like to think of wisdom as something that I am going to teach my children how to make right choices. And hopefully they'll carry that with them the rest of their lives. Well, there is wisdom in that, but that is not the totality or the full depth of what the Bible means to have wisdom. The first thing we need to realize as we talk about a walk or a conduct that's characterized by wisdom is that this is a continual walking or conduct. 
The sense of this word walk is to be continually doing this. It's the same thing as verse 2, the idea to continue in prayer. This is not a one or two-time event. This is a continual event. It is something that we grow in. It is something we progress in. It is not something that we ever arrive. But our prayer life grows deeper and deeper into the will of God, into the thoughts and the concepts of what God is doing, not just what we want Him to do. To have a purposeful living that is conducted by what God is doing in this world and how He may want to use me to be a part of it, that is a continual cycle in our Christian growth. So it is not just at church that you are to be walking in this wisdom. It's not just at church when you're with your brothers and sisters in Christ that God can use you. It is every day of your life. This is a continual walking or a conduct, but secondly, this is also a specific kind of walking or conduct. It's interesting that this word wisdom in verse 5 is used six specific times in Colossians, we're not going to have time to look at all these, but if you want to write these down, if you're taking notes, it's, this word wisdom is found in chapter 1, verse 9. It's found in chapter 1, verse 28. It's found in, chapters, in chapter 2, verse 3. It's found in chapter 2, verse 23. It's found in chapter 3, verse 16. And now it's found in chapter 4, verse 5. So Paul is not throwing something new into the mix as he is giving his final words to these Christians. Now remember, he's wrapping up his letter to these Colossian Christians, not knowing if he will ever see them in person, knowing that he may die in prison. So these are very important words that he is giving this body. Now, I just want to look at two occurrences of this word wisdom so that we can get an understanding of what exactly Paul is talking about. Uh, Turn a few pages over to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, And so, from the day we heard, talking about he heard how the gospel is at work in the Colossian church, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual what? Wisdom and understanding. Both of those words rooted from Proverbs. Verse 10, here's the result of walking in spiritual wisdom and understanding. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we see the first mention of wisdom in chapter 1, verse 9. And another passage that will help us further understand this word wisdom is in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Look at what it says there. He says he has a struggle for those both in Colossae and Laodicea that haven't seen him face to face, 
uh, and here's his struggle. He desires that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what's the knowledge of God's mystery? It's Christ, right? So Christ is the mystery in the Old Testament that has been fully revealed in the New Testament. And then get what he says in verse 3. In whom, or in Christ, is hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Very things he mentioned in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Do you know what it means to walk as we jump back to our text, walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom, as one individual says, is to walk in the spiritual wisdom that centers on Christ. Jesus, in other words, is wisdom personified. Jesus, as he came to earth and lived among us, is wisdom indwelt in a physical body. To walk in wisdom is to walk in the ways of Jesus. Not in just a a, a sense that, well, I'm going to do right because Jesus tells me to do right and I'm going to try to follow his commandments. No, it is to walk after Christ in the context we will see of what he has done for his people and what he is seeking to do in this world. That is a walk in wisdom. Therefore, we have to come to the conclusion of this. And please pay attention. Wisdom is not simply teaching someone how to make wise decisions but teaching someone how to order their lives in light of who Jesus is and what he has done and is doing in bringing, as Colossians 1 talked about, in bringing all things to their completion that he would have the glory. That is biblical wisdom. Living in light of the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. That is the way that we as God's people are to order our lives. You see, the New Testament ethic and, and, and even the Old Testament ethic, the giving of the law in the Old Testament was not patterned after just a list of do's and don'ts. It was patterned after what God had done in making his people his own. And here is how you live in light of that, to be a light to the Gentiles. And we see similarly how we now live in light of Christ is a light to the world. So this is a specific kind of walking or a specific kind of conduct, a walk that is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a third aspect to this walking in wisdom, that this is a walk that is to be uh, made among unbelievers. 
Because Paul specifically in the context here says walk in wisdom toward who? Toward those who are outside. Now Paul has already done a great deal of talking in the book of Colossians on how we're to treat one another. I mean, you just read over chapter 3, you'll see how he characterizes our attitudes to one another and the need for the unity of the local body. But now he talks specifically, let's go, like our mission statement says, not only to proclaim the gospel in our community of faith, but to our world, those who are outsiders. So this specific context of our walking in wisdom is toward unbelievers. And this has to be a purposeful or a proactive choice to live in wisdom by God's people. Just in breaking down chapter 3 and verses 1 and 7, we see that, that Christ is to control our actions. We're to put to death what, what verse 5 in chapter 3, what is earthly in us? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. We see in verses 8 through 11 that Christ is to now characterize our speech. We're to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Stop lying to each other. Verses 12 to 17 of chapter 3 show us how Christ is to fill our attitudes. The opposite of those things in verses 5 to 11 is, is to walk as God's chosen ones. We're to have kindness, humility, meekness, patience, on and on, forgiving one another. And then that overflows to our relationships that we've looked at, husband, wife, uh, father, mother, child, work. And again, as we see that this is a walk in wisdom in light of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he is seeking to do through us, all of this is sandwiched in chapters 1 and 2 of this book that Christ is to affect our outlook. That's why in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians, Paul spends all of that time talking about the exalted status of Jesus. He is preeminent. He has, has, has reached that divide that we are going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. He has spanned the gap, and he is the one who has qualified us as unbelieving sinners, dead in our sins. He's qualified us to be a part of his kingdom. He has made peace. See, it's not until we get to Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and many times we kind of maybe have the attitude that that's kind of the boring part of the book, and here's the practical part of the book. Man, you can't get to chapter 3 and 4 of Colossians until you really understand chapters 1 and 2. You see, this is what is to characterize the life of believers. We are living and walking among outsiders. In fact, I would dare say that most of us spend more time living 
and living our lives amongst those who are unbelievers as opposed to those who are believers. The places we work, the people we live around. And it's so interesting that as we look at the spread of the gospel, and we know that God used Paul, who wrote Colossians, Paul used, or God used Paul to do a great work in spreading the gospel, but what about after Paul died? What about when the disciples all died, the apostles? Did God's work suddenly stop? God used these individuals as figureheads to greatly promote the work of Christ as it was starting out. But listen to this. Many sociologists have now recognized that, quote, most conversions are not produced by professional missionaries conveying a new message, but by rank and file members who share their faith with their friends and relatives. Isn't that encouraging news for you and for me? Maybe you have a family member that does not know Christ. Maybe you've been praying for them for years. Maybe it's somebody you work with that you are just burdened for and, and that, that, that you just desire them to come to the truth. Did you, do you realize that the majority of conversions are not by those that are in quote-unquote some type of full-time uh, ministry? Oh, I hate that term. We're all in full-time ministry. I mean, there's never a time we check out of God's service, is there? It's not just the missionary or the pastor that is dedicated to God's service. It's all of us. Did you know that the way the gospel spreads primarily is through you being faithful as a witness to Jesus? It's simply by rank and file members of Christ's kingdom sharing their faith with their friends and relatives. Makes more sense why Paul tells us to pray the way he does in verses 2 and 4, doesn't it? I like what this, uh, what, what uh, further they say, this will be on the overhead. A study of the spread of Christianity in the modern era has also demonstrated that individuals, families, clans, groups, and societies from anywhere and everywhere have been drawn to God by cords of divine love. As we are walking in wisdom among those that are outsiders, as we are following the example and the work of Jesus for us. There's a great difference that individuals cannot help but take notice of. Jesus himself says, they shall know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The gospel is at work. And folks, we need to realize that the way to walk in wisdom toward outsiders is characterized by what that next phrase in verse 5 says. How do we walk in wisdom toward outsiders? So we're following in an understanding of the grace that we've been given and the great 
responsibility and privilege it is to deliver that grace. Our hearts have been filled with that grace. We, we, are, we understand the unconditional love we've been given. And then we go out making the best use of the time. Maybe your translation says that differently. It could say redeeming the time. You see, folks, this walk in wisdom is a walk that seizes the opportunity. Literally, this word, making the best use, is the word used of redeeming. It's the word used in Galatians 4 5 that he has, he has um, bought us from the slavery of sin has the idea of redeeming or buying out the time. This word time has the idea of of opportunities or moments of time. And if you were here last week and you remember, this is a specific time period we're dealing with. uh, As as Paul said in verse 2, being watchful in prayer... It is redeeming, it is taking advantage of opportunities of time in light of this end time age. In light of the latter days. The latter days of watchfulness. We are both watchful in prayer and we are watchful in our living You see, this this is not necessarily talking about just time in general, but it is talking about seasons of time or opportunities of time that God places before his people to be his witnesses. We, We see in Ephesians 5 a similar idea where the same word is used for making the the, the, uh, best use of the time. In Ephesians 5.16 it says, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Folks, we don't have forever. There is coming a day... where the mercy and grace on those who are not believers will run out. In, first, in, second, Peter, the, 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 uh, in second Peter 3, it says, The Lord's not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. In other words, He's not, gonna, he's not prone to, to go back on His promises. The Lord's not slack concerning his promises, as some people count slackness, but he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. That's in the context of individuals, false teachers, saying in the early church, you guys say Christ is coming back. You keep saying that, well, look, nothing has happened. He's not returning. And that's what leads Peter to say, hey, a day... A thousand years is like a day to God. God's outside of time. He's not, you know, what seems like a long time to us is not a long time to God. But God has a set timetable where all of his chosen called people uh, will come to Christ. 
He's not going to lose one. Jesus says, all that you've given me, Father, I have not lost one except Judas, who we read about was determined uh, before time began to be the one that would betray him. Jesus says, I, I, uh, I am the good shepherd. If there's one sheep among my flock who is lost, I will come to rescue them. You see, all of God's called, all of God's elect are, uh, will be saved before Jesus will return. And it is our responsibility to be aware of the times that we are to be faithful in our duties to proclaim to the world the gospel of Jesus. That all of those who are truly his will come to accept him. We are given the great privilege of doing that. And many times when we think of missions, because Paul himself was a missionary, was he not? We think of missions as something that we just give money to. That missions is something that missionaries do overseas or uh, in strategic parts of our country where there's not a lot of gospel-centered churches. Folks, we're all called to be missionaries. Are you living a life that says, God, I want to redeem the time? Father, these are, uh, God, these these are evil days, and I want to purchase that time that you give me, purchase it from from evil wickedness to a God-glorifying shining of the gospel just like you purchased me out of sin, out of slavery to be a part of your kingdom. And God, in the midst of the darkness, I am going to buy out the time, so to speak. I am going to purchase it for your glory. I am going to take advantage of the opportunities you give me. Folks, the time for bashfulness, the time for excuses, the time for being slack regarding the Christian faith is no longer. It's time we get serious. It's time we get proactive. How are you at making the best use of the time. So we see the first way that we live proactively, that we live, we are called to live in the family of God, is to continue steadfastly in prayer. But the second way is to walk in wisdom. We're not just praying for other people that the gospel would be open for other people, but the gospel would be open for us in our life. How do we walk in wisdom toward outsiders? The first way then is making the best use of the time, to redeem the time. But then there is a second way that Paul shows us how to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, and that is verse 6. Not only a purposeful conduct or a purposeful living that is characterized by walking in this wisdom, but a purposeful conduct or purposeful living that is characterized with our speech. 
Let your speech always be gracious. What we are talking about here this morning is Paul is saying, as you are redeeming the time, as you're walking amongst those that are unbelievers, you are to have grace-filled speech. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, uh, that looks like verse 5 is one command, and then verse 6 is, is a second command, walk in wisdom, and then let your speech always be gracious, with seasoned with salt. Um, literally, what this says is, you, um, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, and your word, always in grace, is seasoned with salt. The original language is there is a much closer connection to walking in wisdom and our speech. How many of you know individuals, maybe at work, uh, um, maybe individuals you know of, that man, they claim they're a believer, they claim all the right things, but man, you hear their speech and it just demolishes everything. To have a speech that is characterized as gracious means that we are to have that speech be grace-filled. Now, how can we have a speech that is gracious or a speech that is grace-filled? Let me just give you three ideas. None of these are how-tos. None of these are three-step formulas. These are concepts that that must be present in our lives. First of all, grace-filled speech comes from a grace-filled message. Make sense? You can't have a legalistic, law-filled message and proclaim grace. Folks, the only way that we are to have a speech that is characterized as gracious and as grace-giving is to be consumed... And to allow God and to, to, to beg God to pray as part of your prayer in seeking the things of God to say, God, would you implement into my heart in a deeper way the greatness of the grace that you have given me, the riches of the gospel that you have given to me? Because until my heart is, is growing in the depths of that, as 2 Peter 3.18 says, until I am growing in the grace and knowledge of God and what he's done for me, my lips aren't going to be able to be grace-filled. I mean, they can to a certain extent. That's maybe a little shallow. But folks, grace-filled speech has to come from a grace-filled message. It's interesting that this word in verse 6, speech, again, it's the same word in verse 4 that he says, um, pray for me that I may make the mystery of Christ clear, which is how I ought to speak. So what kind of speech is he talking about that's gracious in verse 6? It's the kind that is declaring and that is consumed with the greatness of God's mystery, which is the person of Jesus and his work for us. 
Gracious speech is not simply being kind to someone. Gracious speech is not simply encouraging someone. Gracious speech is pointing them to Jesus. And folks, we need to take heart of that speak, uh, talking about the community of faith. When you are encouraging one another, are you pointing them to Christ or are you just trying to encourage them in the immediate sense? Like, it'll be all right. Now, we need that immediate encouragement, but is, is that all wrapped around, I want to point people to Jesus. One of the prayers that, that we pray as a family uh, before we even come here to church is, is Lord, would you use us to point people's hearts to Christ. And as we are walking among those who are outsiders, our speech is gracious. First of all, in the sense that we are wanting to show the love of Jesus to others the same love that Jesus has given us. It's not that we have to say, hey, praise the Lord, and, and act like that annoying spiritual guy at work. That's not what it's saying. But we are showing the love of Jesus, realizing that God may give us and will give us opportunities to redeem the time. Secondly, grace-filled speech comes from a grace-filled life. Just as grace-filled speech comes from a grace-filled message, grace-filled speech must also come from a grace-filled life. That's why Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. How is it gracious? By being seasoned with salt. How many of you love salt on your food? Rachel always tells me when she makes meals, don't worry, I already salted that. You know what my first reaction is? I still, I grab the salt shaker. I, lo I love salt. But you see, what we have to realize before we can have a speech that is seasoned with salt, we first have to be seasoned with that salt. You can't season something with something you don't have. How are we to, if we are not passionate about the things uh, of Christ... And I'm not talking about a passionate, like, let's have a pep rally, get you all worked up. No, a passion that, that, man, Jesus is more. My heart yearns for Jesus even as I yearn for other things. Even as I have worries in my life and I have stressors in my life, there is something in my heart that is pulling me to Christ. I want him more and I'm struggling, but my desire is for him. As that becomes greater in our lives, it is then and only then that we can give out the salt. That's why this word seasoned has the idea of something that has happened in the past with continuing results. The, the, the most phony thing is for a Christian that is, ap that, that is apathetic or negative to try to be an encourager to somebody else. Because it's like, man, I see you all the time. You know, don't, don't play the hypocrite with me. 
Ephesians 4.29 says something very similar. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, speech is an overflow of the life. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now here's what we have to understand with this idea of your speech being seasoned with salt. In Matthew, in this passage on the overhead, the focus in Matthew is the life. Is your life one that is seasoned with salt? The focus in Colossians is that your life is seasoned with salt. The focus here is speech. Now there's two purposes of salt um, in in the, the first century. The first purpose of salt was to preserve things. So you would, you would douse that meat and those things in salt to preserve it. Maybe some of you like country ham. I don't like it. That thing's too salty. It's doused in salt. The second purpose of salt, however, is to create a greater taste a greater thirst for something. How many, a meal, how, much, how many a meal have you had that was bland, but once you sprinkled that salt, man, that thing came alive. What Paul is saying here is your speech is to be gracious in such a way that it is like salt to that individual that it is creating a thirst that there is something more at work here. There is something greater at play here. And that salt is creating a thirst for something more. Is your grace-filled speech coming from a grace-filled life? Are you spending the majority of your time at work thinking about the people around you and how, man, they just don't get it and they are just living so wickedly and their testimonies are just, are, uh, the way they're living is just so corrupt and, and I just can't believe it. And God, I know you've placed me here, but Lord, it sure would be great if I got out of here because Lord, these people are just having a bad effect upon me. Maybe Jesus has placed you there purposefully. Maybe he desires you to be the salt to them. Not to seek to make your salt tasteless. Maybe we need to come to the understanding that those that are unbelievers are going to live like unbelievers. Is that an aha thing? Is there an extent to the depravity of of, of mankind? Like, is there a, this is the bottom rung, you've now reached it? <laughs> you know as well as I do, there's not. Folks, as we continue, and as, as the darkness becomes greater and greater in our world, we need to stop being shocked at sin 
and start being re-amazed at the greatness of the gospel, don't we? Because we have, I would say, the majority of Christianity is, is, needs to, it has their mouth opened at the extent of sin. And maybe we need to close that and get our perspective off of, of what unbelievers are doing and how, and how bad everything may look and get it reacquainted with the greatness of the light of the gospel and what we have. It must be a part of our life. And then thirdly, grace-filled speech And here's the exciting part. Grace-filled speech meets grace-void needs. Look at what verse 6 says as it closes. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. What's the result of this? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I just want to give you three concluding understandings regarding this meeting of grace void needs. First of all, this is an individual responsibility. So that who? What pronoun is in there? You. Now, the specific context of verses 2 to 4 was, hey, church, would you pray for me to have an open door for the gospel? Ah, now he switches and says, you, me. We, every day, are confronted with grace, void, needs. That God gives us opportunities to shine into so that you may know how you ought. Another way of reading that is for the purpose of knowing how it is necessary for you to answer each person. It is necessary. It's the same word that Paul uses in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought, which is necessary for me to speak. It's not the responsibility of one person to meet grace-empty needs. It is the responsibility of each of us as individuals. But not only is this an individual responsibility, this is an individual privilege. We are given the privilege to answer, to know how we ought to answer each person. Now, if we as believers are to be gracious, to to, to give grace to to those that are outsiders, the implication here is there is an emptiness that is inherent with those that are unbelievers that we are given the privilege to declare can be filled. Our answer is not one of argument. Our answer is not just one of defense. Our answer is one of hope. Listen to what This individual, D.T. Niles, said, A Christian witness is not like a rich man who has a lot of bread, which he hands out to the poor beggars who have nothing. He is rather like one beggar who tells another beggar where he has found bread. Listen, when we proclaim the gospel, please just don't say anything if you're going to have a holier-than-thou attitude and be like, well, you know what you need. 
You know, in order to be like me, in order to dress like me, in order to talk like me, this is what you need. (laughs) The Pharisees did that. We are not somehow high and mighty saying, ah, if you have a need, here is where you go, let me direct you. No, we are sharing the light of the gospel as the same poor beggar who happened to have revealed to us where the source of bread is. And man, let's tell our fellow peasants where to also find that bread. That is a Christian testimony that is seasoned with salt. That is a Christian speech that is seasoned with salt. It is not judgmental speech. It is hope-filled speech. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Get this, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness as a poor beggar looking at another beggar saying it's but by the grace of God this is the work. He's cleansed me from sin. He's given me hope and a purpose for life. Man, he can do the same for you. And it is with respect that we see individuals made in the image of God. Individuals just like us that are yet dead in their sins. This is a privilege, folks, for us to share. This is not one of those guilt things. Oh, man. I went to that one week long missions conference and now I know everything I've done wrong and how I better get better or else I need to whip myself. No. By the way, there's nothing wrong with missions conferences. (laughs) 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 This is one of those things that this is a great privilege that he has given his people. And man, he knows we're going to fail. He knows we're going to stumble. He knows that that we're going to get tongue twisted just like Moses made those excuses. But guess what he says? That's okay. I'm sovereign. People are not going to accept you because of your delivery. They're going to, people are not going to accept me because of your delivery. They're going to accept me because of my working in their heart. So be faithful. Do your job. Don't bury the, the, the hidden talent in the ground and when the, the master returns, you're shamed. You see, this is an individual responsibility. This is an individual privilege. And this is a specific calling. You may say, how is this a specific calling? We've looked at us but what does it say about the other person? So you may know how you ought to answer. How does it end there? Each person. In other words, what this is saying is it, that you may know how you ought to answer, not just people in general, but each person, each individual 
in situations that need individual attention and grace. In other words, it means that the each person in your life is different than the each person in my life. That each person in your life has specific circumstances, specific surroundings, specific temperaments, specific needs, specific fears, specific worries. And we are called to exercise grace and shine light into those individual lives. It's not just lumping everybody into one big pot and saying, hey, let's just mechanically say we're going to share our faith. It means getting into people's lives on an individual basis. Everyone is separate. As one said, the emphasis is being on perceptive answers that have a delicate blend of pungency or straightforwardness and graciousness that is suited to the varying needs of individuals. You know, I'm going to share the gospel to one individual in a specific way that may be different for another individual. I'm not going to change the message. I'm not going to change the content of the gospel. But guess what I am going to change? How I approach it. Maybe today we need the veils lifted off of self, not only in our prayer life, but in our everyday living. As we come to the Lord's table to remember Jesus' death and resurrection for us, let us pray that we would seek to live and walk in the wisdom which is defined by Christ himself and what he has done. And in doing that, seek to redeem every opportunity of time and to have our speech seasoned with the graciousness of the gospel. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.